big sky, big potential. This is Eastern Promise. When you look at the renewable energy opportunities, all of a sudden, the Norfolk and Suffolk coastline, we're right in the vanguard, right at the front line. And, you know, whether we've got nuclear size well, the offshore wind of our East Anglian coast, the opportunities for hydrogen coming out of our the legacy in the UK continental shelf, we have a hell of a lot to offer the UK. And actually, we can keep the lights on single-handed. MP for Waveney, Peter Aldous, speaking to me earlier this year at a meeting of the all-party parliamentary group for the East of England. And, of course, he's absolutely right. But what exactly is the scale of the opportunity that clean and renewable forms of energy represent to our region, the UK and the world? One thing's for sure, the opportunity stretches beyond just the generation of power, but into the supply chain as well. A greater demand for renewable energy can therefore support greater investment in skills, more and better jobs, regeneration and new opportunities that we haven't foreseen yet. I wanted to explore this further, and there was no better place to start than with the Managing Director of Opogy Group, Chair of the New Anglia Local Enterprise Partnership Innovation Board and very much a kindred spirit for Eastern Promise, Jonathan Reynolds. Jonathan Reynolds, welcome to Eastern Promise. You've been going some time saving, saving the region, saving the world already. But give us a potted history of yourself and then we'll come on to tell us about Opogy because it's a huge, huge enterprise you're, you're, you're helming here. No, thanks, Mike. Where to start? So, Jonathan Reynolds, I am, my day job is the managing director of the Opogy group of companies. So we're a kind of a, a niche group of companies in the world of consultancy, very much um, in the world of energy, clean energy, sustainability, helping to address some of the, you know, the challenges and opportunities around climate change and delivery of net zero. We work with businesses, governments, supply chains, projects right across the board, whether it's in offshore wind, in onshore renewables, in hydrogen, in nuclear. Transport is becoming an interesting priority, marine, ports, etc. We work right across the spectrum. We, wow. we have this quite weird but broad capability um, and we started here in Norfolk um, very much regional, regionally based but we are now very international so I have a team in Scotland through Opogy Scotland I have a team in Asia uh, we're working right across the UK um, and beyond we have investments in kind of high growth really innovative technologies uh, so we have a, a, a company called Continuum so which is a world-leading technology company based in Denmark but we're looking to commercialize in the UK as well that's looking at yeah, composite recycling, so things like wind turbine blades, which is a major problem right now. We've got a proven technology to, to help you know, recycle and upcycle wind turbine blades into usable products. So there's exciting kind of technologies, which we, are, we like to put our money where our mouths are and our resource where our mouths are in terms of helping bring these technologies to market. But I'm otherwise Norfolk born and bred. I've uh, been, been working largely in the world of energy and sustainability most of my career for the last 20 plus years. Um, spent a long time uh, you know, as the, the development director for the Orbis Energy b uh, Facility in Lowestoft, mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, which is fantastic. It is. 100% um, full still, which is great, um, owned by Suffolk County Council. But with, with Norfolk, 
Norfolk's my home. Norfolk's where we've put, you know, put the, the headquarters for Opogee. Um, my, my senior team and other sort of, yeah, business partners in Opogee are mostly you know, from Norfolk and live in Norfolk um, and are passionate about our own, our own backyard. Um, and we like to see really where we can see that, that leverage investment in, in, our own, in our own area, in our own local communities. Um, that's, that's what we're passionate about. So I've got two of my directors who are sit on the board of the East of England Energy Group, again, giving back in terms of mm-hmm. the energy sector. So that's Martin Dronfield and Andy Holyland. Um, Martin you know, recently stood down as executive chairman, but again, has been passionate about you know, you know, seeing growth and investment in this region. I've been on the, the local enterprise partnership board with New Anglia for the last, I think, these six years, um, which has been great. And again, that's about me giving back and you know, passionate about seeing growth in the region. You know, it's, it's, they're all pro bono roles. We don't seek any remuneration from those, those, but it's about us giving back because we're passionate about doing the right thing. And that's, you know, that'll be a, be a trend of probably you'll, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll see through some of this conversation. We, I'm always passionate about doing the right thing. I don't care if it means that you know, someone benefits more than we do or, mm. or someone. It's, it's not about party politics in that sense. It's that sometimes you've just got to do the right thing, whether it's for business or society or local communities. I want to come on, if I may, to uh, last week, because we're speaking now at the very first day of June in 2023. And last week was the Southern North Sea Conference 2023 at the lovely, wonderful Norfolk Showground. And for those uh, asking for a friend, for those who were not there, what did they miss? The SNS 2023 was one of the best and the biggest events to date. It's been going for nearly, nearly 20 years as, as a sort of a big Southern North Sea regional showcase for, for energy. And I think this year was the largest to date. More exhibitors, more, yeah, more footfall, an unbelievably packed conference program. But leveraging some of the uh, really senior industry officials, so Dan McGrail, the Chief Executive of Renewable UK, Tim Pick, the offshore wind champion. We had senior representatives such as Sarah Williamson from Sizewell C, who's, who's leading uh, the civil program uh, sort of for the construction of Sizewell C once it gets uh, final approval, hopefully not too far away, um, and a whole range of other, other yeah, industry leaders. We were there exhibiting. I think pretty much most members of my entire organization were there in some <laughs> form, both supporting it, speaking, hosting panel sessions, but exhibiting and, uh, and giving back as well, which, which is, is part of what we do. And I think the conference program was fascinating because it did cover everything from looking at the future of hydrogen, the future of the gas industry in the Southern North Sea, where we take offshore wind, some of the opportunities. But it was quite honest in terms of some of the challenges that we need to address as well. So the whole conference and the whole event went under the, under the sort of the banner of Vision 2030. Yes. And yeah, that, that was really important because you know, everyone's setting targets, whether it's you know, government po- policy targets around 2030. So in offshore wind, we want to see 50 gigawatts uh, of, new, of offshore wind installed by 2030. It's not far away. And we've got a long way to go. Um, we're, we, yeah, most local authorities or other, other, other public bodies are looking at you know, carbon neutrality or carbon emergency plans and carbon targets up to 2030. We are woefully behind where we need to be locally, regionally, nationally on some of those targets, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more to do. So setting that vision for what this region could do and should do was really important. I think there was yes. a collective, kind of a collective ambition coming out of the event that this region in particular, more so than any other region in the UK, has so much potential, not just to be a leading energy producer, but to really be a leading region in driving delivery of net zero. 
So some of the stats um, that I know we put together that Martin uh, spoke about in his kind of last, last hurrah as, as the executive chair. We talked about this region. If we just look at the renewables and low carbon generation assets, so solar, wind, onshore and offshore, what we have with size will be some of the bioenergy assets, which have got a whole abundance of different bioenergy, bioenergy, energy from waste, anaerobic digestion facilities. This region is powering the equivalent of 30 to 32 percent of all UK homes right now. Yeah. Which is pretty incredible, considering we only have about 10% of the UK population, but we're powering the equivalent of, yeah. of you know, 30-ish percent of all UK homes. You're welcome, Britain. With the pipeline of forecast investment in offshore mm. wind, the potential of Sizewell Sea, um, you know, and the amount of that can produce with some forecast investment in bioenergy, not much in onshore wind, unfortunately, but that's something that I know government is starting to look at, finally. Um, we could see this region potentially produce enough power equivalent to 90% of yeah. all UK homes. Equivalent of 90%. Yeah. So, and that's including a huge amount of solar, about another three gigawatts of solar. Um, yeah, this is not you know, all just in, you know, rooftop solar on people's homes. This is some of those larger um, you know, uh, potential solar arrays, rooftop solar on big industrial uh, facilities. That's massive. So the role this region can play, I think, is absolutely quite incredible and is not always understood by local communities or you know, local politicians in terms of you know, what we need to do to make that happen. A lot of the time, grid, a national grid in particular, gets a kicking for all the wrong reasons. Um, I think politicians forget it's one of the most heavily regulated you know, <laughs> sectors They've, yeah, they've, they've not been allowed to invest in sort of speculative um, yeah, infrastructure or speculative investment for decades. And in some ways, that's held us back because we've not been able to build the infrastructure ready for what we know might be in the pipeline until those projects, say an offshore wind farm or a big solar farm, absolutely start to scratch, you know, starts construction, then they build the grid connections. Well, if it's not building investing in grid at all levels, we can make a massive difference. So things then like the Norwich to, to you know, Essex uh, kind of route for 180 kilometres of potentially new infrastructure, possibly by pipeline, some undergrounding, comes in for a huge amount of public fury for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. Personal view. Uh, but I think if we, we need to recognise that it's not about this region powering London. It's about this region powering the UK, creating a huge economic you know, sort of, you know, potential. Yeah. All the jobs that will come with that, and tens of thousands of new energy-related jobs, mm. that's the prize. And they're long-term jobs. If we look at you know, whether it's in offshore wind, hundreds of jobs when those projects become operational. If we look at you know, size, we'll see up to 900 jobs you know, when that project is, is, is operational. They're permanent jobs. And we're seeing up to eight or 9,000 jobs at peak during the 10-year construction period. That's over 25,000 jobs over, over the life uh, of that construction over the next 10 years. I mean, that's, that's a massive potential prize. One of the, I think, fantastic panel sessions, um, actually one of the speakers was, uh, was a lady called Beth, uh, one of the apprentices from Norfolk, yeah. who's currently doing her apprenticeship down at Hinkley Point C in Somerset. Yeah. She came back and was talking about her experience. Yeah. The fact that she is now working full-time down in, in Somerset on a major project. She's not only has a board, her lodgings, everything kind of covered. She's you know, getting a degree level uh, kind of education. Wow. She'll be coming back, hopefully not too, far, not too long away, to in a more senior position, mm. fully qualified, 
ready to work on yeah, and support the construction of Sizewall C. And even herself, as a, as a young female, was inspirational, genuinely yeah. inspirational. And she herself said, actually, I want to inspire other young, young women to follow my, my footpath or follow my path into this sector because um, she can see the value. Yeah. She didn't know a few years ago what energy infrastructure was, what nuclear was. But she had a passion for you know, getting her hands dirty, you know, working, working with tools, <laughs> yes. working with things, which is fantastic. And that's something we need to encourage. But it's a challenge when you're coming on to education that that was a kind of a common theme through the whole of the SNS conference is where are the people? Where are the people that are going to deliver this huge opportunity? We have, if we talk to every industrial sector, whether it's in finance, in tourism, in housing, in construction, everyone's screaming for a skills crisis, your skills shortage. And they're all true to a, to a degree. Everyone's got a you know, skills problem. But we're not joining the dots in terms of, well, we could talk about construction or housing or in transport. Actually, we need to kind of break that down to what are the skills in mechanical yeah, exactly, or electrical? specific skills that can Because they're transferable. Yeah. So we're doing a huge amount of work. And again, it was launched uh, another platform we've been involved with called the Energy Skills Intelligence Hub, funded by APITO and the ECITB, so the Engineering Construction Industry Training Board, something that my, my team had obviously been leading on, to try and kind of bring some intelligence to you know, what the, the forecast looked like for the future of different you know, industry sectors, certainly around energy and hydrogen and carbon capture and offshore wind and oil and gas. But we're breaking it down into what are the skills? What are by grouped by you know, kind of job family or skill family? So we can look at different manufacturing roles we're gonna need, different consenting roles, different management roles, different leadership roles in HR and admin, breaking it down into those kind of details. So we can then encourage and look for skills mobility. How do we encourage people to transfer or have the confidence to transfer those skills from one sector to the other. Sometimes it'll be you know, coming in from, uh, from other sectors that are relevant, mm. other infrastructure sectors, other construction sectors, or within energy sectors. How do we encourage that kind of skills mobility? And that's something that we're quite passionate about doing. It was a really common theme coming all the way through the yeah. conference, pretty much in every technology, whether it's in wind, hydrogen, nuclear, oil and gas, um, or carbon capture. Everyone was talking about how do we encourage that kind of skills mobility um, because that's where we need to put more focus if we're going to actually have any chance of solving some of the skills challenges, in quotes, um, that we all talk about, but create that long-term opportunity for generations to come. So what can we do? That's a really absolutely fascinating point. What can we do in this region for ourselves before we start saying, Mr MP, Miss, Mrs MP, can you talk to the government about this, that and the other? What, what levers have we got to pull to actually sort this for ourselves and how far do you think we can get down that road sometimes it just comes down to the basics of let's talk yeah. let's actually let's look at collaboration and open communication between areas between counties between technology sectors between industries and we don't do that often enough for in in, in my view so what really understanding what are the needs of wind versus nuclear or you know, infrastructure or road building or automotive because actually, we're all going to be fishing in the same talent pool. Mm. So how do we all collectively make that talent pool much bigger for ourselves? How do we collectively talk to the, the, the further education you know, college community, the sixth form colleges, the universities, holistically? And it's not about saying, Norfolk, you specialise in these courses, or you know, Suffolk, you specialise in these courses. That because be. you know, we still have areas of really you know, real deprivation. 
There are kids in Great Yarmouth that have not been to Norwich, you know, teenagers that have never been to travel as far right. as Norwich. So I hear, you know, in terms yeah. of real deprivation. We've got, still, if you look at, you know, just down in Essex in terms of Jaywick, you know, in, in Tendering mm. District, yes. one of the most deprived exactly. communities, um, you know, in, in the country. But actually, literally just up the road, we have massive potential through things like Freeport East, you know, Barside yeah. Bay and Harwich, what could be some game-changing kind of investments in offshore wind manufacturing or hydrogen production, building a new 122-hectare port. I mean, these are massive, massive opportunities. Yeah. But just down the road, there's massive pockets or you know, real pockets of deprivation. The same thing in you know, parts of or pretty much every coastal community, so parts of Lower Stoff still, parts of Great Yarmouth. So we need to balance that kind of opportunity with actually where do we focus on those vulnerable communities, those vulnerable families and, and areas of, of, of society as well. Because they're the people we really want to target. They're the people we really, really want to inspire to really kind of come and join these sectors. And that's where we're going to start seeing real social transformation yeah. and long-term growth for, for the region. I mean, I don't know Yarmouth as well as I know Lowestoft, but it seems to me that we've got the LEAF LEF facility and the work that the port of Lowestoft are doing. And that is such an exciting, I mean, just for, as, an, as someone from the outside looking in, an exciting time because the mind reels at the possibility because you can see the cascade of employment opportunities, of people coming to be sighted close to the port. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the scope for somewhere like Lowestoft to benefit from if, if we do this right or if, if you know... Uh, all the stakeholders do this right. And there is that free-flowing communication, exchange of ideas. Mm. Um, what, what is the scope for that? To, to be blunt, the scope is, is boundless. Um, you know, the potential is I was boundless. hoping you were going to say. But, you know, it's, it's not, you know, Lowestoft has huge, huge potential. But, you know, rather than just, I don't want to focus exclusively on Lowestoft. No, 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 I'm just saying because I know it's better it's than that, the that kind of ripple effect across yeah, exactly. the whole of the coast. But what's important, when we're talking about energy-related sectors, ports are critical. You can't deliver offshore wind without a port. You can't deliver oil and gas support without a port. So, yeah, they are absolutely critical. And, yeah, we're, yes, Lowestoft, I think, and you're absolutely right, Project LEAF, so the Lowestoft Engineering um, Facility. Sorry, I'm going to say that again. It's the Lowestoft Energy Engineering Facility, yep. ABP. Please don't get, you know, don't, don't cancel my purchase order. Um, but we, and we were fortunate to, enough to, to be part of, um, you know, some of the early modelling for looking at the economic impact of that particular project. So 25 million investment from ABP, some support from, from the Towns Fund at Lowestoft as well, which is good. But you're right, that could be a real catalyst for further investments in the wider area of Power Park. Yeah, we've seen Orbis that was built mm. 13, 14 years ago. That's been a major catalyst for real innovation and some of the spin-outs um, from, from all this. Light Scottish Power, who have now built their £10 million operation facility for East Anglia 1 within the port yeah, area. Seen, yeah. We hope you're going to see that expand when they build, you know, finalise the building of East Anglia 3 and the future of East Anglia 1 North and East Anglia 2. Even Vattenfall, you know, Vattenfall have chosen to base their long-term operations and maintenance base at the new Great Yarmouth O&M campus, which is fantastic. Again, yeah. major investment to unlock that part of, uh, part of Great Yarmouth, partly enabled through, through, through the LEP, through the Building Better Funds, and, and you know, investment from Norfolk and Great Yarmouth Borough Councils. Fantastic facilities. But the ripple effect, I was talking about this at SNS, actually, with Vattenfall, um, looking at the ripple effect through Lowestoft, through the whole of Norfolk and Suffolk, it's not just about those no. companies working in the port area. It's much bigger than that. Um, so we, we were talking about temporary accommodation for, for, for you know, yeah, technicians and, and construction you know, your workforce that are going to be coming to, to Lowestoft, Great Yarmouth, through their supply chain. 
And that's where I think we can, you know, that we can have real impact. But again, it comes back down to how do we connect the dots? So we're seeing in Lowestoft fantastic investment in, you know, in offshore wind. The port is critical to that. We've got to unlock somehow working with the local authorities as well, unlock planning so we can actually start to get a, a level of speed in you know, building new facilities. There is that Field of Dreams quote, build it and they will I, come. You know, that, I thought of that one earlier, yeah, when you were talking. We, we, talk, we, we use that phrase a lot, um, yeah, but it is so true it for, is. for what we're doing in this region. You know, and go back to Orbis, and I was part of the, the development team at Orbis when I was part of the old East of England Development Agency that helped to, to finance the sort of 9.4 million capital that, that paid for Orbis, working with the county council. But it was very much build it and they will come. The local community thought this, what was this, this big white elephant um, this great big office building down, down at you know, what was the Household Waste Recycling Centre. But it worked. It was a strategic investment, long-term investment. It is 100% full. The challenge now is we can't build grow-on space quick enough mm. to satisfy that demand. So there's more demand for office space, more demand for workshops across the whole area, not just for Lowestoft, in Great Yarmouth as well, in Norwich, in Ipswich. You know, the impact when Sizewall C starts construction... The impact we'll hopefully see in Ipswich will be as great as it will be in areas of the Suffolk coast around Leyston and, and Saxmundham. Businesses that will really, really benefit. Yeah. But it, you know, it's that ripple effect that we need to understand as well. It's not just where the projects are located. The whole region, if we get this right, the whole region will benefit. You know, look, at the, look at the impact of BT and Industrial Park. Yeah. You know, the whole region benefits from having Absolutely. that. that you know, it's one of the you know, kind of hidden gems of, of Suffolk. You know, BT's global research and development base just outside of Ipswich. Yeah. And we don't shout anywhere near, near enough about it. And all of the other businesses, it's not just BT on that, you know, on that park. So many high Indeed. growth, really, yeah, really fantastic digital companies and tech companies on that park. And we don't, we don't connect the dots enough. Um, so that how do we get the research parks working with, you know, uh, you know, with industry, working with the ports to really unlock that kind of joined up, you know, coordinated discussion? So it does come down for me that, could answer your earlier question, open communication. And sometimes we just don't have the time to do that because everybody's so busy. We're all racing to catch up with each other. And sometimes we just need to slow down a little bit, stop, have those discussions. How can we generally and openly work together across sectors, across boundaries, across technologies? That way we can actually start having some really grown up, sensible conversations because we all want the same thing. Certainly those in business, we all want to see the same thing in terms of you know, investment and sustainable growth in our you know, respective yeah. areas. And I think the, the political manoeuvring or, or fears of the political comeback of these conversations, I think, is so damaging that in many ways, I think uh, business... And, you know, I, I think business, particularly in, in this region, is so open minded and really good at getting, getting on with it and is proving that mm. it's walking, it's walking and talking that you just have you will eventually, I think, bring people with you, those politicians with you. I, yeah. The more successful you are, the more they want I, to know. I do think sometimes we have you know, almost you know, political a, a level of fear within some of the local politics, fear of doing the right thing or the wrong thing because of the impact it might have on voters or an upcoming election. Um, yes, I can see that from a politician's perspective. But my, my message to any politician is be brave. Mm. Let's take longer. Yeah, decisions that are the right thing comes back to what I was saying earlier. It's about doing the right thing. Sometimes it's yeah, and these those decisions and those objectives, those targets need to go way beyond political cycles. Yeah, this constant let it set a target within a political cycle is 
is nonsense when it mm -hmm. comes to business. Business don't make short-term investment decisions or growth decisions on, on political cycles. It's, you know, it's different. It's because there is the, the right infrastructure or the right kind of opportunity for them or the right kind of you know, co-location of their potential customers or suppliers or access to talent. That's the, you know, some of the drivers for businesses to choose where they invest. We, you know, we need to you know, be, have much braver you know, discussions with, with local politics to make sure we, we kind of think more long-term about where do we see this region, these counties, in 2030, 2040, 2050. And then work backwards from what is it we want to see? Work backwards from, say, a vision 2050. Um, but all right, let's you know, start vision, vision 2030. It's a slightly, slightly yeah. shorter term. And let's stop talking about kind of the political cycles if Labour gets in at general election, if the Tories manage to you know, uh, you know, keep a majority. Absolutely. We've, we've seen the impact of the Greens, um, which have now secured Mid Suffolk and, and, and uh, yeah, East Suffolk and Mid Suffolk. You know, that's changing the, you know, the nature of, of some of the local politics. Um, if we're not careful, that will become a distraction from you know, where we need to focus in terms of business and industry, driving growth, investing in jobs, investing in new infrastructure. And we need the public sector and local government bodies to work alongside business. Mm -hmm. Not sometimes it does feel that there is, is kind of a bit of a divide. There's a them and us um, you know, kind of you know, debate. And not everywhere, I, I appreciate. And there are some, some local authorities that are much more grown up um, and, you know, than, than others. Personal view. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that's, but I think we need that open dialogue if we're going to actually be serious about long-term investments and long-term growth for, for our region, whatever our region, big R, small R, uh, will look like in the future. You have, I agree with everything you said there, but unsurprisingly, since that's about the whole raison d'etre of this podcast. Um, Martin Dronfield, whom you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. uh, got some, some coverage and uh, gently raised eyebrows for his comments at SN. You mentioned his sort of uh, farewell address. Um, about the you know the east of England is 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 what it is here and now and that uh, sorry Aberdeen you've uh, well that that was how it was reported yeah. I wasn't yep. there so I can't comment um, and uh, just just quickly um, I I sort of read the coverage of what he said and I thought that sounds absolutely uncontroversial to me he's absolutely spot on uh, it, it, do you want to sort of cover off briefly what what because uh, yeah, I'm assuming you're in the room but what he said. And uh, why he's right. I know we've kind of covered this already, but... Um... Well, hopefully Martin will be listening to the podcast, so of course he's right. Um, you know, of course just, he is. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, the, the, the message was, this region quite often is, you know, undersells itself. Yes. And going back to what I was saying... That's why I'm here. This, this region in particular, you know, I think has a leading role in terms of energy production and generation. We don't shout about it enough. Um, in terms of offshore wind, we have over five gigawatts, uh, yeah, about 37, nearly 40 percent of all installed capacity of offshore wind in this region, off, mm -hmm. off the coast of this region. That's more than any other region can boast. If we look at you know, the, the level of onshore wind, okay, it's about 420 megawatts. So not great, not when you compare it to the likes of Scotland. If, we look at, if you want to decarbonise the regions, look at what Scotland's achieved with onshore wind. Mm -hmm. It has one of the lowest carbon intensities of its grid of any part of the UK because it's really gone heavy on, on onshore wind. We need to learn from that in other parts of England. Just sweep that to the politics to the one side for the moment because I know obviously this government does have uh, consultation on that uh, on onshore wind at the moment. So hopefully we'll, we'll see some common sense prevail. Leveraging our agriculture, we have so many different types of bioenergy, energy from waste, anaerobic mm. digestion. Yeah, we're burning all sorts of, of interesting, whether it's poultry litter, straw, all sorts of other, other kind of waste 
um, agricultural waste to produce power. Fantastic. We need to see more of that, but we need to balance that with future feedstocks. Battery storage, I think, is going to be one of the most interesting ones. We have more than 2.8 gigawatts of battery storage projects in the pipeline, which I think is phenomenal um, in terms of looking at grid resilience and yeah, evening out some of the variability of renewables. Because, as it's often said, the wind doesn't blow at peak direction 24 hours yeah, a day, the a sun doesn't that's shine. A, that's a bit of a lazy argument, I find. You know, people will cling to any, any, you know, cling to any... So the response there is, how do you then you know, leverage yeah. that? So putting in place battery storage, so co-locate. So actually, we are seeing most projects, or quite a significant number of projects that are looking at planning in this region, looking to co-locate a large solar farm or, or some other renewable energy asset with batteries. So it actually has a much, much greater impact. Fantastic to see. We've currently got about 137 solar projects that generate about 1.3 gigawatts of power. In planning, there's another mm. 175 currently in the planning system. So exciting. So over it? another three gigawatts of potential solar. So that, that, those 137 have been built over a fair, fair amount of time, the last yeah, decade yeah, yeah. plus. 175. Now, not all of those might get planning permission, let's be honest, um, but I hope a significant number will. And that, again, with the impact of you know, that 2.8 gigawatt to battery storage, will really transform the way that renewables and the variability of renewables can play a real key part in future you know, sustainable um, you know, energy production. Touch on nuclear, you know, 1.2 gigawatts um, you know, at Sizewall B, another 3.2 with the advent of Sizewall C. Fantastic. We need to see more of that. Now, I'm not saying necessarily large EPR rollouts. I'd love to see you know, uh, sort of the, the you know, Sizewell replica at somewhere like Bradwell. Um, or, you know, but we need to embrace what's the future of smaller or advanced modular reactors also look like. If we're going to build this huge workforce for Sizewell, which is, has a, such a fantastic opportunity, how do we leverage that? Yeah. What can we, we need to do that? next? Yeah. You know, nuclear behaviours... In, you know, in the world of the energy sector are some of the best safety standards, the best health and safety kind of, you know, and sort of you know, behaviours anywhere in, in any part of the energy sector. How do we use that as a catalyst for investment in skills yeah. in other technology areas? So I think there's a huge opportunity to do that. Um, a good example I've been, been, been working with uh, through some of the work we're doing with Sizewell C is working with the colleges around their electric vehicle base. So the shift in automotive from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles. Why is that important for nuclear? Well, actually, working with electric vehicles is high-voltage skills. It's high-voltage yeah. electric, yeah. electrical skills. That's the kind of skills we need in offshore wind, in nuclear, in battery storage. It's not wiring up your three-pin plug. No. So actually, how do we kind of connect the dots? We need more investment in electric vehicles. Absolutely. That's going to be part of the future of passenger transport. But we also need to, you know, massive investment in that skill area because the rest of the power generation sector is also going to want to use those skills in terms of high voltage. So there's, there's some really interesting... Let's get back to connectivity. Well, yeah. yeah. Um, we'll get on to hydrogen in a second. But, you know, yeah, I was going to say hydrogen is my next, my next port call. One of the other big announcements around you know, in the last week or so, and again, it was touched on at SNS uh, last week, is carbon capture and storage. So how do we kind of look at the future of the gas industry off the southern North Sea, off the Norfolk coast in particular, for this potential of CO2 storage? And this, that's a really interesting one. So how do we capture carbon dioxide from heavy industry um, yeah, around, around the UK, certainly in parts of yeah, Yorkshire and Grimsby, um, and yeah, start to store those in underground reservoirs or the former depleted gas reservoirs off the southern North Sea, off the Norfolk coast? And of the 20 new licenses that have been granted, a number of those are you know, just off our coast. And again, that's going to be a really new and in, interesting area um, in terms of carbon storage. 
But I think for me, that kind of presents an interesting kind of you know, a dichotomy as well, because at the same time, we want to look at capturing CO2 and storing it underground. We've got other sectors that are you know, almost screaming out, we need more CO2. So if we look at the food and drink sector, Diageo for the last three years, I think uh, at least two years running, around summertime have declared a, nas- you know, a global shortage of carbon dioxide for carbonated drinks which I could never get quite get my head around you know, some of the, the PR headlines that, you know, shortage of CO2 when, you know, climate change is, is, is kind of in, you know, turn the page and we're talking about, you know, you know, disastrous impacts of climate. So, but also if we look at some of the future of alternative fuels, and I know this is linked to, to hydrogen, but to come on to, there's a huge focus around sustainable aviation fuels or sustainable marine fuels. And quite often that's, you know, kind of uh, what you call e-methanol or e-kerosene or related kind of you know, similar products or similar fuels. They're typically created through combining hydrogen with carbon dioxide through various, you know, and, and, and other things as well um, in terms of refinements. So actually we need a huge amount of CO2 with hydrogen to create these alternative fuels. So we've got to be, into, you know, it, it's a balancing act. Yes, we need to capture, yes, we need to store CO2 and lock it, for, you know, lock it away for thousands of years. But we also need to make sure that we're not just you're focusing on CO2 capture and storage, because otherwise we're going to be almost you know, in a few years' time having to unlock those taps again to try and use that CO2 <laughs> to create alternative fuels. So there's a, there's a really interesting balancing act. Yeah, there. yeah. And then sort of that kind of brings us on to hydrogen. So like the paint tile. I mean, the first time I talked about hydrogen, I thought there was hydrogen. And then I said, there's two colours. No, there's actually... Oh, like, no, it's, it's like uh, Christoph Kislowski trilogy. It's like, it's like a paint tile in Dulux, you know, which is like a shade of hydrogen, you know. There's a whole rainbow myriad of colours with hydrogen. I have um, frosted peppermint hydrogen today. <laughs> I've not come across peppermint hydrogen yet, but hey, it's, it's, there's still, they're still time yes. of the day. I think red was an interesting one. That was a fairly new one on me um, yeah, last week. Um, What's red? Go on then. Red is um, hydrogen produced through both nuclear power and high temperature. So it's kind of high heat. So this this, this, uh, model through kind of what's called solid oxide um, electrolyzers, where it's higher temperatures. So you can kind of electrolyze water at much higher temperatures or effectively electrolyzing steam. Um, But you do that through tapping off heat and power. And nuclear power stations are fantastic because they're not only great power stations, they're also great big heat machines. Mm-hmm. So, and that's something that even science will see is looking at and how we can harness some of the heat from nuclear power to support that kind of process in terms of both yeah, high temperature electrolysis for hydrogen, but also potential for district heating networks longer term. So there's, there's some really interesting kind of yeah, innovative areas that people don't often think about attached to nuclear. But, yeah, so we've got red, we have pink uh, hydrogen, we have green, blue, turquoise, yellow, there's whatever colour you want. But I'm not sure about peppermint just yet, but yeah, maybe we'll, we'll come up with that one a bit later. <laughs> a puce hydrogen. Well, absolutely. But I think it's, it's one of the, the technologies, or one of the energy vectors that I think kind of starts to link all of the different generation types, whether it's solar, whether it's onshore renewables or you know, onshore wind or bioenergy or, or oil and gas in terms of what the, 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 the concept of blue hydrogen, so taking natural gas... Go through, put it through a process called steam methane reforming. So you capture the CO2, um, you lock that away through carbon capture and storage, and you're left with, with hydrogen. Uh, they call it blue hydrogen because of the way it's produced. Mm-hmm. Um, where the, the normal one everyone is talking about at the moment is green hydrogen, and that's simply electrolytic hydrogen. So it's hydrogen produced through electrolyzers, so electrolyzing or, you know, water or splitting water into its constituent elements of hydrogen and oxygen powered through some kind of renewable or low-carbon you know, asset, whether it's wind, solar, or, or nuclear power. Um, 
that then, yeah, unfortunately, people then like to put their own thing, you know, their own kind of color on things. So yellow being solar, turquoise being bioenergy or, or other things, you know, pink, as I said, being nuclear, red being nuclear with, you know, heat and power. So it is variable. But, you know, I think for me, hydrogen is one of the key technologies or key sources we need to spend a bit more time focusing on. It's not getting as much traction as we had hoped um, in terms of both government policy uh, and government support. There's some great stuff going on, don't get me yeah. wrong, but I think we need to fast track some of the thinking there. There's been this polarised argument for some time uh, with hydrogen around, do we put it through the pipes um, for hydrogen for heating for domestic homes? And you know, in some areas, it might be viable. In other areas, it might not be viable. And that's simply down to you know, the integrity of the grid network. We haven't, you know, like the uh, power networks, it's aging infrastructure. Some of that pipelines, you know, those pipelines you know, across the country, the National Transmission Network, has been there for quite some time. Yes, it's being upgraded. Yes, it's being, being looked at. But I think it's not, hydrogen won't be suitable everywhere. So I think at the moment, the government are planning to make a decision, a firm decision on whether or not to allow hydrogen for heating for domestic consumption by around sort of 2025, 2026. I think that's a bit leaving it a little bit late because you know, we need to kind of either choose to invest or choose not to invest. But I think one of the big sectors we're focusing on at the moment, certainly through what we do within Opogee, but also the regional cluster that, again, was, was kind of launched um, more formally at SNS around Hydrogen East, is looking at hydrogen for transport. Mm. Because, but sometimes it's not hydrogen that people want. It's what we call a hydrogen derivative. So hydrogen is a core part, but it's a touched on around whether it's for aviation or maritime. Hydrogen chemically combined with carbon dioxide to create an alternative fuel, methanol or yeah, any kerosene or some other derivative, or chemically bonds um, yeah, with nitrogen to create ammonia. Again, lots of this, you know, we're seeing now in other parts of the world, you know, new ships being commissioned powered by ammonia, you know, green ammonia or powered by e-methanol electric lytic methanol. Um, and we're seeing the same for you know, the aviation sector in terms of you know, common discussion around SAF, sustainable aviation fuels, which is a simple, it's a hydrogen derivative in, you know, in many cases. So I think hydrogen has a role to play. And I think hydrogen could, if we focus on the transport sectors, I think that's probably one of the harder to you know, address you know, areas of, 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 you know, of net zero in terms of reducing emissions. And I think we just need to kind of prioritize. So I think for me right now, Focus on hydrogen for transport and heavy industry, because we know we can do that. It's relatively safe yeah. um, compared to, to other alternatives. And one of the challenges is if you're pumping it um, into people's homes, you're as good as the, you know, the boiler at the end or however that's maintained. So you've got lots of points of failure. On, you know, and sometimes you've got domestic consumers that like to tinker. They're not trained engineers. <laughs> They're not trained gas engineers oh. in that sense. So there is a safety impact. Yes, we need to address that. But yeah, I think there is a massive role for hydrogen to play, but also around energy storage. There's you know, big concerns, and you would have seen these in the press, like I have, around lithium-ion or, or access to kind of rare earth materials globally for things like batteries, for whether it's the future of battery electric vehicles for EVs or, or you know, battery storage projects. And that's, that's going to remain uh, an interesting challenge because we are not the only country in the world that's looking at a pathway to net zero and how we can fast track that. Every grown up economy is doing the same thing. So we're all going to be looking at wind or hydrogen or nuclear around the world. So this is not just a, a regional opportunity or even a UK opportunity. This is a global opportunity because we're all going to be adopting similar or variations of similar mm. technologies. 
So I think hydrogen as what we call long duration energy storage absolutely has a key role because you can transport it, compress it and store it for long periods before you end up needing it. Mm. So looking at kind of interseasonal um, you know, storage. And you know, it's interesting that we, in terms of government uh, policy around things like low carbon heat, um, how do we look at solving the heat challenge? So in winter, we have this massive peak energy demand you know, through winter periods for, for heat, just for you know, whether it's gas or for, for electric for, for heating. In the next few years, with the, you know, with the challenges around you know, the climate change, we're going to see complete reversal of that. We're going to see huge demand for electricity for cooling. Air conditioning or you know, comfort cooling in mm. homes and businesses. Mm. So actually, in winter, we're going to need much greater energy demand for heating, but that will completely reverse in the summer periods for cooling. And we're not necessarily always thinking about yeah. how do we balance that. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see how we can start to address that. But that comes back to almost that interconnectedness, how are we thinking about the design of new properties or new buildings to look at heating, cooling, and the kind of infrastructure that can support that. So it's not one or the other. I'd like you to play the role, just briefly, of Mythbuster. Mm-hmm. And I'll try it. Our, hang on, let me just do the counting. Previous Prime Minister. Which one? <laughs> the member for South West Norfolk. Um, mm-hmm. In her her time in office sort of led a debate on solar should we say um, which I found a bit of an eye raiser for a regional MP to I mean I, I, I kind of understand the politics of it not that I thought it was a very wrong headed approach but the kind of solar is bad for agricultural land and as one would expect her to she, the president of the NFU, National, National Farmers Union, was invited to comment on think, any questions. And she sort of said, oh, agricultural land, we need more agricultural land, as you would. Mm-hmm. Now, I know people listening, uh, particularly someone like Clark Willis, um, who is an agri-futurist, uh, and if that term doesn't exist, it does now, um, would say that that presupposes that the continuum of farming will continue in a line, unbroken, untrammeled, you know, untouched by history. Mm-hmm. Whereas we're moving in reality to vertical farms where yep. you can get better quality stuff faster that lasts longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and a we are going to need to eat less meat. The yesterday they didn't mention it was in Norwich, which was a bit of a bugger. But um, BBC Radio 4 World at One had the John Centre on talking about they've developed a flavourless pea. Why would anyone want a flavourless pea? Because soya has to come halfway around the world um, and um, they can now make meatless product using mm-hmm. peas that don't taste of peas. Um, so it's, it's a very, you know, and, and so if we are not eating as much meat and if we are not um, needing as many animals, we don't need as much land to make feed as, you know, I know you yep. know, already know where yep. I'm going. So what's your view? You bust this myth that solar... Is well, I think it's a myth anyway. You may tell me I'm wrong, but um, that is somehow a threat to agricultural land. I personally do not agree with that view that solar is a any threat to agriculture. Um, I think it again, it's balance. 
because there are going to be some areas of land that are very fertile, the soil is great, and we need to kind of try and retain that for some uses around food mm. or, or yeah, food production, crops, or, or, or potentially for, for livestock. That's fine. But we are seeing kind of solar farms on fields that can be mounted higher, yeah, much higher kind of, yeah, kind of railings or, yeah, kind exactly. of, or frames, so you can get co-benefits. So you can graze some livestock, you know, sheep and other things, and have solar farm. You can... But there are some studies now looking at a solar farm, typically 15 to 20 years. So if you lease your field, uh, you've got perhaps lower grade soil or lower grade land. Um, actually, you allow your solar farm on that land for, for 10 to 15 or 20 years, whatever it might be. You can kind of revitalize that soil by allowing kind of different crops to grow. You can seed it underneath it. It does allow things to grow underneath it. It's not just carpeted with solar panels. You can't do anything with it. But actually, if you with the right kind of, uh, I guess, maturity around how you use that land, when that solar farm comes off in 15, 20 years, at the end of that lease, you're left with much higher grade or more fertile soils that you can then do something else with. So it brings it back into circulation for other uses. Now, I agree that, yeah, we're seeing and, you know, food enterprise park and other things around vertical farming and food innovation. Fantastic. Yes, we will see a lot more of that. And I think, you know, food production is going to be one of the big areas that we are going to need to really focus on in terms of future economic growth across the whole of the country, in particular the role of this region. We need to feed people. Yeah, if we look at, you know, again, carbon emissions, you know, in terms of transporting all sorts of fruits and vegetables, you know, halfway across the world, if not more than halfway across the world, um, when we can easily grow them in the region mm. or in the UK. So kind of looking at how do we look at food miles this whole concept of food yes. miles is really important. But I think you know, solar has a role to play, absolutely. Um, but it's not right for every piece of land. And again, you, I think... No, exactly. It's got to be a balance. And yeah, we're, we're doing a lot of work at the moment um, through some of our, our teams here in, in Opogee Net Zero, one of our, one of our you know, group companies, to look at spatial mapping where we're looking at infrastructure, we're looking at all the different assets, where you know, all the pipes are, where the wires are for you know, typical energy infrastructure, solar farms, etc. But we're also now starting to look at land, you know, land grades, soil grades. So we can almost start to help to work with developers to have grown-up discussions around, right, where could we look at lower-grade land or lower-grade soil, which might lend itself to a solar farm or some other use rather than food production, mm. or you're looking at crops. Or can we, again, an interesting kind of carbon capture technology that we were, we were sort of doing some research with a few years ago, something called biochar or agrochar. And that's kind of almost how do you, you know, taking organic waste, burning it to almost like a charcoal-like residue, burying it uh, um, you know, 6 to 12 inches beneath the, you know, beneath the soil, and it acts as a soil conditioner. So actually, it, it, it's, it's a really interesting concept, but there's other places in the world which have some of the most fertile lands because they actually have high concentrations of kind of this charcoal material, um, you know, there's, yeah, which, which we're not looking at. Just before the, the closure of the RDAs, we were about to do field trials, um, you know, working with the, the UEA on biochar on parts of the Elton estate. But unfortunately... You know, bonfire of the quangos, and it, it didn't happen, and those things kind of... But there was, you know, there was research reports that I was part of with the university to look at the, uh, how do you unlock the economic benefits of things like biochar? So how do you work with organic waste? How do you kind of burn it through pyrolysis or advanced gasification, so burning without oxygen? Mm -hmm. So you don't burn it to ash, but you burn it to a charcoal. And how do you then use that in different soil types to add to the conditioner 
so it can revitalize different soils. But actually, what was interesting is certain crops you saw you know, enhanced growth, sometimes up to three or four times enhanced yield. So again, but it's not, it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. The same as solar and agriculture, it's not a one-size-fits-all. You need to, you know, there's so many variables to look at the right solution for the yeah. right land, for the yeah. right farmer, for the right business, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, I think, again, it comes back to that grown-up discussion. Uh, you know, we need a balance. Yeah. Um, we need a bit of everything. So you, you said that's soil conditioner. The reason that's why you said soil conditioner, and all I could think of in there is, here comes the sciencey bit, because, because your soil's worth it. So, um, <laughs> and, um, you know, luscious grass, you know. Um, just wanted to close out by looking because I could we just talk all day, but um, your innovation chairmanship of the LEP, mm-hmm. and without detouring into what's happened is has happened uh, in terms of the, the LEPs, and um, it, it, it's no good us sitting here and, and, and discussing whether that, you know the rights wrongs and that. Don't want to get into that. What I want to know from you is. How, and you've, you've, you've touched upon this a bit with the connected innovation side of things, and maybe that's the answer, you've already given me the answer, but how do we keep that innovation piece moving? Because I, forgive me, this is just my point, my view, mm. my educa- semi-educated guess, but because I was around sort of working in politics when the LEPs got started, mm-hmm. and um, I kind of have a sense of how these things pan out, my sense is that the current picture that's evolving with counter deals, and I could be wrong, is going to be a very short-lived picture. It's not going to... It, it, given whatever, you know, depending on what happens at the election, I think it could be a very short-lived picture. I think we're going to return to pretty much... Uh, that's just a hunch, mm-hmm. and you know, nobody... And I don't think anyone's going to, you know, do anything on the back of my hunch, but... Um, what do you think it's going to look like and what do you want it to look like you know beyond the grown-up conversation yeah. piece we've already discussed it's, it's interesting because i was part of the east of england development agency so the six county yeah regional development agency um which i left just before the bonfire of the quangos or as you know, the bonfire of the quangos was announced in sort of 2010 um under sort of the the, the sort of david cameron um era and you know, saw the advent of the LEPs, and at the time I thought, this is interesting. It's... And the, but we had what we called sub-regional economic partnerships at that point. So we had you know, Shaping Norfolk's Future in Norfolk, the Suffolk Development Agency, you know, doing some great stuff in their respective counties. But they were kind of joined up you know, through some of those kind of you know, cross-county discussions through the likes of the RDA networks. And even the RDAs themselves were joined up. So, yeah, I, I was the head of energy and climate change, led on to all things low carbon and sustainable development. But I used to kind of connect up with all of my counterparts in all of the other regions and the devolved administrations yeah. to compare notes, to look at how do we leverage kind of our collective ask of gov- government where appropriate? How do we play to each other's regional strengths? So we didn't try and create you know, almost carbon copies of each other in every single region, because that was just, why would we do that? It's, you know, there's no need to do that. Mm-hmm. Play to our, our region, regional strengths. And I think the... For me, the going down to you know, individual counties without something that enables the counties to come back together to look at where are those strategic discussions, and it's something that I've been been saying for you know, through some of the discussions with the county colleagues is we need to be very careful that we don't abandon some of those cross border, cross county forums, or you know, that 
where the feedback from business, the feedback from industry is we need these things to work across Norfolk and Suffolk, if not beyond. So where are those regional discussions? How do we encourage those? And how do we retain those, particularly around innovation, particularly around skills, particularly around inward investment and business support? Yeah. Because as you, you know, rightly said earlier, businesses don't see the county boundaries. And you know, as, as someone who has you know, business interests in multiple counties right across this country, then trying to understand kind of the no- local nuances for individual county councils is actually quite a challenge. And if you're not careful, it will put some businesses off expansion mm. because they're, you know, and that's, you know, I've, I've had that discussion with a number of other businesses and customers that, that we talk to who don't quite appreciate sort of the, the local politics or the local political landscape of some of this. Um, they see, yeah, where do I get a grant from? Where do I get support from? Where do I get you know, support for, for investment in whatever I'm doing? That's going to change. But I think there is absolutely still a need for that strategic business voice, if not strategic political voice, at cross-county you know, boundaries. Or it's got to be across county boundaries. So one of the things I've recently been saying is, yeah, we need some kind of New Anglia business forum, potentially, or beyond that, so we can have those strategic discussions of, of the areas that matter and the areas that we can collaborate across borders. And I think innovation is a perfect example of that. If we broke up the innovation board, the, you know, I'm very privileged to chair and have done for, for a number of years now, I think that would be the wrong thing to do because I think we'd end up looking at a very Norfolk focus and Norfolk strengths, which is, don't, don't get me wrong, I think we've got some fantastic innovation strengths in Norfolk, but they're different to the innovation strengths in Suffolk. So they're not the same. And we need that, you know, how do we connect the dot with Adastral Park and, and Norwich University of the Arts or Norwich Research Park? How do we connect mm. those, those discussions? Yeah. And that's the exciting bit for me. And how do we strengthen each other's, other, other's assets? How do we strengthen those connections, not potentially not enable them through, you know, through the, because there's not the resource to do that? And I think that's one of the big concerns for me is if we... If we've got to make sure that whatever happens, and I don't have a crystal ball, unfortunately, so I don't know what the future is going to look like, but I hope that you know, we in Norfolk and Suffolk, from a New Anglia perspective, because we've been having devolution discussions and county deal discussions for a little while now, we've been talking about and looking at the options for transferring the functions of the LEP into the respective counties. Now, the Chancellor's statement you know, and it's, uh, you know, recently in terms of minded to cease funding for all LEPs probably came as a bigger surprise and a bigger shock for other LEPs in England than Norfolk and Suffolk. We'd already started that planning. Mm. So I hope that we, slightly have, we have an, a little bit of an advantage in terms of some of the thinking around what this might look like. But I think there is, there is real challenge that we need to make sure that you know, the voice of business isn't lost in here. Because, and there is discussion around you know, advisory boards, and I think that's fine. But at the moment, the private sector members of the LEP have a legal responsibility as a directors of the LEP to do what's in the right, you know, right to do the right thing again. And coming back to that theme, yeah. doing the right thing, not just for the LEP as a business, but for what the LEP stands for in terms of economic growth and sustainable economic growth for Norfolk and Suffolk. Not having the same level of responsibility on an advisory forum or business board that effectively reports into politicians and elected officials, I think there's a risk of sometimes, yeah, in some areas. Not, I hope not in Norfolk and Tuffet, but other parts, but might get kind of lesser influence. So I think we do need to kind of just be mm. careful. But I agree that a lot could change between now and over the next 24 months. We've got a general election, you know, that the starting gun has effectively been fired. We're seeing massive change with our local um, you know, politics, 
with Mid Suffolk, East Suffolk, you know, others that have got lesser majorities for the Conservatives. Um, you know, Labour kind of you know, looking at uh, you know, resurgence in some areas as well. The Lib Dems, um, you know, you know doing, doing pretty well in the local elections. So I think there's, it's, it's going to be interesting. I wouldn't know where to you know, put my money no, if, I, gonna, if I were a betting be person a, when it comes to election, the general election. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we've got a number of cabinet ministers in the region. So I think we do have, you know, let's use it while we can to influence. But I, I just I, my big concern is making sure that the role of business and the role of the voluntary sector as well, because and the education sector is really important. We don't forget the education sector with the certainly the, the private sector membership of the let board that includes we classified the, the role of the universities and the, and the further education colleges as part of the private sector membership. So I always consider those as, as part of the private sector because they're not elected officials in terms of the public bodies or the local government bodies. Um, and I think that's something that we sometimes you know, need to remember, that the role of education being at the table to, as part of those discussions is critical. Because if we, if we often talk about businesses and education coming together to understand the needs of each other, how does, one, you know, how does the business influence the needs of future education and therefore future skills? Well, if we're both not at the table having those conversations and joining up the dots... That's never going to happen. So I think we need to make sure that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater here, that there are some fantastic things that have been done. New Anglia LEP, um, and I say I've been proud, very privileged to be on the board for, for you know, just over six years, I think has been, I'm not just saying this because I'm slightly biased, but has been one of the best performing LEPs in England of mm-hmm. all 38. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes those in the region don't necessarily see that, that we are one of the best LEPs in the region or in, in the country. Let's make sure that we kind of capitalise on that. We learn from that, whatever this transition is going to look like. But I agree with you, kind of what you said earlier. Everything's up for grabs at the moment because there's a, you know, it's a general election um, just around the corner. And I do, I do think personally we will see whatever happens with the counties, some other regional forum will have to be put in place. Yes. If the counties don't, put in the resource to help connect the dots and those cross-county discussions. And it's not just Norfolk and Suffolk. No. And that's the, coming back to what I said earlier. It's Norfolk, Suffolk, the wider east of England needs that voice, but it's also about how do we connect Norfolk's voice with Lincolnshire's voice around things like agriculture? How do we look at this region and parts of Scotland in terms of energy infrastructure? And if we're looking at, say, wind, offshore wind, how do we look at the, the southwest and the Celtic Sea with Scotwind and the, you know, the, the opportunity off Scotland, off the east coast there, with what's happening in the southern North Sea? Because we're all going to be competing for the same supply chain or business investment in our patch. We're all going to be competing for the same investment or the same skills to, you know, to, in terms of that skills mobility piece again to come and work in our region to deliver those projects. So I think we need the joined-up discussion. The same with nuclear um, in terms of you know, Hinkley Point C and Sizewell C and whatever the next project uh, looks like there. So, we, But that's a good example where collaboration works. So we're already seeing you know, with Sizewell you know, a number of local people from Suffolk and Norfolk gaining apprenticeships and working down at Hinkley, basically cutting their teeth in this sector, getting their training so they can come back to their home region to potentially work on Sizewell C, what we call the Hinkley Point Sizewell Conveyor. Mm. Um, really great initiative. But how do we kind of learn from that in other sectors, yeah. whether it's in wind or solar or agriculture or something else? So let's, I think just, just be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater because I think there's some fantastic things, particularly in innovation skills, inward investment and some of the yeah. business support landscape that would be a shame just to see it just kind of dissipate. Yeah, well, you can, you can have bring the notional... Or, or 
the power home, the responsibility home, the uh, response, responsibility to delivering things home to Norfolk. He was once said to me at an event when I was sort of, I put it to a county councillor that wasn't it great that uh, we had such a you know, free flow, there were people in this, this room in Norwich from all over the region. And, you know, so many people, I don't know from my own experience, so many people go from Kringleford mm-hmm. like in hospitals and biomedical campuses in Cambridge. And um, he was like, oh, no, you know, he all needs to come back to Norfolk. And I'm like, okay, that's a bit of a reductive point of view, but fair enough. Yeah. Um, and I wonder whether we're going to see things like, and this is no disrespect to those individual bodies, they're doing great work, things like uh, Transport East. So mm-hmm. we've got that cross-transport, cross-region uh, transport. So we're going to see, instead of one body doing lots of things, we're going to see lots of bodies doing one thing. And whether that's gonna make things easier or harder i think is is, is yet to be seen um well, i think that's, that's a really good example i mean transport east, we're working with with you know from high yeah, east and transport yeah, yeah and, and i know andy summers really well we yep. used to work together at the at the at Ida, funnily enough um, <laughs> but actually he was on the train with us when we went with the train event we he was also at sns panel. last week on was the, he on the stage as part of our hydrogen east panel ah. um, alongside water resources east so you talk about yes. those kind of different bodies is that daniel johns was it no. Okay. I can't remember. Uh, I'll find out. Um, I will find out. Chop that bit. <laughs> Not to worry. I will, I will cut that. But this bit gets cut. Yeah. But the so, but we did have you know transport east, water resource east, along with hydrogen east. Because again, talking about you, know, how do we connect the dots, break down barriers? One of the big things for hydrogen is access to water. We as a water scarce region, we're the driest region of the UK. You know, we, you know, those who work in climate change and sustainable development know that. And we've been advocating that for a long time or shouting about that for a long time. We need more investment in, in water infrastructure. Anglian Water, Northumbrian Water, Essex Suffolk are doing some great stuff, but we need so much more. Mm-hmm. So looking at transport, touching on that early in terms of the, the priority area for hydrogen being transport. How do we connect the dots beyond county boundaries with tra- transport East as one of those subnational transport bodies? Really important. Really important. We, again, that's, those, those kind of bodies aren't lost. The, the, the discussion with water resources East, again, working across county boundaries. The discussion with hydrogen is working across county boundaries. We are working together because we see the opportunity. We see the need to collaborate. That's not because of politics. It's because of necessity that we can't do what we need to do in hydrogen without water or without engaging transport in terms of those, you know, the influences around transport infrastructure. So that needs to happen, but we're doing that ourselves. That's not because of politics. Now, I think in some areas that will still continue. That will have, you know, have to continue. But there aren't those kind of cross-border, cross-county, you know, regional bodies in all of the regional sectors, or all the really important sectors that's going to affect Norfolk and Suffolk or, or, or our regional future. So how do we do that is a big question. Don't have the answer to that one, but if I did, I probably wouldn't be sitting here. Yeah, likewise. Um, But (laughs) speaking of, um, two more questions, um, Mm. but both quick ones. What can, and this is slightly self-serving, I'll admit, but what can Eastern Promise, as a brand, as an entity, as a, a, uh, call it what you will, um, do to help with that connecting piece? What would you like to see us do? What can we? What role can we usefully play in making the things you've been talking so eloquently about happen? That's a really, really big question. Firstly, I think carry on doing what you're doing. 
because you well, no, I say that because I've got huge respect for what you've done. I think, and you should be really proud of. And I'm not fishing. I'm just we no, want to no, know what we can do. You know, I've listened to pretty much I think most of, of the podcast, and there's some fantastic um, you know, insights coming from a whole range of different different individuals and, and, and different you know, different voices, which I think is really good. Um, it, but we need to carry on doing that and I'm shine that spotlight. That, yeah. mm-hmm. and, and, well, knowing you as I do, you, I know you won't stop doing that, which is great. Um, but how do we connect those dots? How do we kind of break down barriers, break down silos and start talking about the interconnectivity? So how does health work with aquaculture, work with transport? You know, or for example, how does energy work with, with construction, work with housing and you know, work with water and, 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 other, and agriculture as well? How do we start to get those kind of cross fertilization of ideas, of sectors, of industries and technologies? Because that's where we're going to really come into our own as a region. You know, it's one region, one economy, one society. Yeah, how do we kind of get that holistic big picture? Mm. Um, and that's, that's where I've always you know, looked at in terms of the wider kind of sustainable development focus that I've, I've been looking at for, for a number of years. Everything is interconnected. When we start to look at the bigger picture, it becomes really interesting. You start to spot opportunities for growth and investment yeah. and kind of interesting kind of you know, connectivity that you wouldn't normally see when you're in the thick of it, on the ground, kind of really in the weeds, doing some great stuff as well. But sometimes you need to stop start connecting those dots. I think you, you mentioned um, you know, earlier on around this, you know, kind of your you know, concept of the reverse manifesto leading up to the general election. And I think that's a really great idea um, to start looking at what is, what should we as a region be looking at? Not necessarily leaving our you know, future to elected politicians. But that, you know, what is it we can do ourselves? Yeah. And, yeah, and what is, what's the role of business? What's the role of communities? What's the role of the voluntary sector? What's the role of education? Mm-hmm. How do we work together? We all have a role to play. And how do we start to genuinely connect those dots? Yeah. I mean, what, what's interesting to what you said is uh, you're seeing so many things linked in. And this is great that they're happening. I, did, I went to the Agritech Meet Space Tech. Yeah. Um, there's one coming up, uh, Health Tech Meets Net Zero. Mm-hmm. And it's it's almost getting all those into one event or one place yeah. somehow and, and making it all kind of happen in the melting pot yeah. and say, what can we get out of it? And, and, and I'm going to have to get my head around that. But final question. In two weeks' time, I'm talking to Chris Starkey, who yeah. is, as you know, uh, Chief Executive of New England and he's moving over to Norfolk County Council. What should I ask him? Oh, that's an interesting question. That's an interesting question because I love Chris to bits. I think he's he, he's done a fantastic, and I genuinely mean this. And I'm not saying this because I'm I'm on 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 the podcast and I'm I'm being recorded. But I think Chris has done an incredible yes. job. Have a um, work with him. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I've 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 seen him through you know sort of the last twelve years of the LEP. Um, had the privilege of working with him for the last six on the board. And I think he's done some fantastic, fantastic stuff. And sometimes again, some really quite challenging. You know, economic circumstances, some quite challenging politics, and he's managed to cut through that and deliver some great stuff. Um, in his new role, working for Norfolk County Council, I'm sure Chris will continue to champion um, you know, some of the messages and some of the things that he, he's, he has led um, and he has, has really kick-started through the LEP, and I really want to see that continue. And I hope that, that Chris will also continue to see the value of a strong business voice or you know, the voice from business and industry to work alongside the public sector in partnership with the public sector, and particularly the county councils, um, to really kind of drive future growth. It's not always about economic growth, but sustainable growth of the region. We need to make sure that we can look at all the bases, whether it's... It's interesting, you know, we, we have this discussion sometimes uh, within the LEP that 
there's certain th- sectors or certain industrial sectors that really the left doesn't have that much involvement with, health, for example. But mm. actually, health is absolutely a critical part of any sustainable economy. Um, you know, we've you know, seen the you know, a shift. We you know, kind of dissolved our transport board within the LEP you know, in favour of supporting Transport East, which is great. But then it's making sure we kind of look at that connectivity um, again. But I think big big question for, you know, thing for Chris to think about perhaps is how do we continue to join the dots where they need to be joined but respect the individual county boundaries where, they, where, where, where there's focus there as well? Because mm. Norfolk has some fantastic assets. It's got a fantastic, vibrant future ahead, but it's also got some real challenges. There are still pockets of deprivation. There are still real challenges in North Norfolk around coastal erosion. You know, there could be less of North Norfolk the way we're going. Mm. So how do we look at that you know, resilient, sustainable you know, economic future uh, for Norfolk? And I know Chris will do a fantastic job in the new role. Um, we've, you know, we've appointed Roseanne, um, our chief operating officer, who will be coming up as the chief, chief executive uh, for the LEP, overseeing some of that, what that transition will look like. And I know Roseanne, um, you know, we're, we're in really safe hands um, you know, with Roseanne in terms of driving that, that future. And again, with sort of Chris's, Chris's legacy. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what this, what this future looks like. I think we are moving into, I'll say uncharted territory, because I think we've, we have seen variations of this kind of political change before, um, certainly around local economic developments. Um, but I think you know, we have to recognise that, again, I think you touched on it earlier, this is a non-statutory role for most local authorities. You know, economic growth isn't a statutory responsibility. So how do we encourage that when the counties, the districts, and how do we kind of break through some of the politics to do the right thing for, for the county, the right thing for the region. But how do we connect the dots, not just with contiguous local authorities, but with those that matter um, and those that have shared interests um, elsewhere in the UK and beyond? Um, I don't know if that answers your question. No, I mean, it was interesting because um, my mantra is always to... We're not Yorkshire. There's no overarching, I don't think, regional identity, which is a strength, I think, not a weakness. Uh, and that means we can, I can look at each place on its own terms and look for those points of connection where they exist and not try and mm. sort of shoehorn everything together and pretend it because people don't like it. But where there's the will, I think you build that and momentum comes along with it and momentum it creates its own centre of gravity, draws everyone in eventually. Yeah. Um, and and, and that's, you know, I think that's how you do it. One, one thing that we, I don't think we have yet at a region or even a county is... Yeah, shared vision. Going back to kind of the SNS Vision 2030, that was as much about how do we create a shared vision for energy in the East? How do we create a shared vision that every part of the economy and society can get behind? So we all, we all have the same end in mind. And we don't have that, I don't think, for Norfolk. We have various strategies. You know, we, have, you know, we have a health strategy, we have an economic strategy, and all sorts of other, other strategies. How do we create that shared vision for Norfolk, for the region, and even if we say a shared vision for the east of England, which we, we kind of got close with, you know, very, very near the, sort of the end, end of the days with the old uh, regional development agency, because it wasn't just about uh, the economy. It was regeneration, health, transport, housing, everything else was, was bundled in. It was the, well, the, I think it was referred to as quite well from the Holy Trinity of the regional development agency, the government office for the east of England and the regional assembly, bringing all the local authorities together. Yeah. So we had kind of those, those three, three legs of the stool. We don't have that same connectivity at the moment, where it's not as visible as perhaps it used to be. But how do we create that shared vision, that shared narrative for the region 
So Norfolk has a very clear role in, you know, you know sort of the role of Norfolk in, its, in, in, in all its glory. The same for Suffolk, the same for Essex, the same for Cambridge, the same for, for other parts of the East. I think that's going to be an interesting debate at some point. How do we create a genuinely shared vision for the future? And then we start on points that, of agreement, don't you? You start. What, what do we agree upon? What, what do we agree? From that cascades down yeah. are the, you know, the the plans for where does energy fit? How does energy contribute to you know, to agriculture? How do we focus on agriculture? What's the future of agriculture going to look like for Norfolk versus Suffolk versus Essex? Because they all have a different role to play, but they all have a shared role to play in terms of that sort of common objectives um, under mm. a shared vision. And that's something I think we don't spend enough time talking about where we have shared interests. We often talk about shared differences or how exactly. we want to do something different because it comes down to personalities and, and local politics, dare I suggest. But well, I have to say, view. if you're ever gloomy about the east of England, come and talk to Jonathan Reynolds because he'll oh. make your day. Because that was one of the most exciting... I'm going to rush this out. One of the most exciting conversations I've had on the podcast. So absolutely rich with potential, buzzing with ideas, and that's just from you. Um... And it's, it is such a pleasure to talk to you because I, I always leave these conversations feeling so energised, pun intended, <laughs> about the future of Norfolk, Suffolk and Cambridgeshire and our whole region. Thank you so much, Jonathan. That was a pleasure. No, thank you. Absolute pleasure. It is impossible to come away from a conversation with Jonathan without feeling tremendously energised about the future of our region. I'm incredibly grateful to Jonathan for his time and for his boundless enthusiasm, and I do hope that's not the last we've heard from him on Eastern Promise. You can contact Eastern Promise and find out more about what we do by visiting our website, easternpromise.org.uk. Eastern Promise is a Priors Croft production on behalf of the Eastern Promise East Anglia Community Interest Company.